The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what, what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word, and you may be seated. <clears throat> Today we uh, conclude our short Advent series on the life and ministry of John the Baptist, we looked at his birth and his identity, the prophecy that was fulfilled in his birth. Then we looked at his ministry last week, and today we're looking at the end of his ministry, which is followed by his death, his beheading, which Luke does not describe in this passage, but that is looming on the horizon for him. I'd like to look at our text under four headings to help us gain some clarity Number one, we'll look at an honest question, a question that John is asking of Jesus, an honest question. Number two, an astounding answer that Jesus gives him. Number three, a helpful illustration that Jesus gives us. And finally, we'll leave, leave us with a personal challenge. So an honest question, an astounding answer, a helpful illustration, and a personal challenge. Now, last week, we left John the Baptist in prison, uh, he, as you remember, was preaching repentance, preaching judgment, and openly criticized the king, King Herod, who promptly put him in prison. So John is now starting to doubt whether Jesus is the coming Messiah, whether he is, he is the one he's supposed to prepare the way for. Now, we can go even a little bit more specific than doubt. We can say that Jesus is offended by Jesus. 
Because that's what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John is offended. Uh, one of my daughters, Polly, came up with a different word. She has combined the word offended with the word defensive, and it came out as I'm defended. And so often, I hesitate to share this illustration because it only makes sense to us and it's only funny to us, but maybe it makes sense to you as well. Often when something happens, Polly would say, I'm defended, meaning that she, something has happened, she's offended, and she's feeling that she needs to defend herself. She needs to make things right. I think this is exactly what John is feeling. He's, he's offended by what Jesus is doing and saying, and, and he feels that something needs to be done here, and he's feeling a little defensive, and he brings his doubts, he brings his struggles to Jesus directly. Now, this word offended that Jesus is using, I regret using that illustration, by the way, at this point. <laughs> made no sense to anybody else but this word offended that Jesus is using in, in verse 23 is an interesting word it's all over the scriptures and it means to to stumble or or to fall away it's the word from which we get our English word scandal or being scandalized by something or someone and Jesus is saying that blessed is the one who's not offended by me who can work through these obstacles. Blessed is the one who is able to, to look past the offense of the gospel, who is able to, to remove these obstacles and remain faithful to Christ and continue to follow him in spite of all the challenges that a life with Christ brings. And so sitting in prison, John has discovered something that makes him stumble, that makes him, makes him consider whether Jesus is the one, whether Jesus is worth following, something that makes him think, maybe there's another one out there that I need to switch my allegiance to. So he's feeling offended. He's feeling scandalized in some ways by what Jesus has been doing and saying. Now, I think there are at least two things that are testing John's faith that, that makes him feel, that make him feel offended. One is theological, and second one is, is personal. So let's work through these, and I think we'll relate to both of them ourselves. Theologically, Jesus is not fulfilling John's expectations of judgment. Now remember what John was preaching. So for example, in Luke 3, verse 9, John proclaimed the impending judgment. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John was preaching, even now, the judgment is almost here. When Jesus comes, judgment is coming. If your tree is not bearing fruit, if you're not right with God, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then in Luke 3, 16 and 17, John expressed this very specific expectation of, of Christ. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is what John is expecting. He's expecting Jesus is coming. He's got the winnowing fork. He's got the fire. The Holy Spirit will, will clearly define who's with God and who's not with God, and judgment is coming. But Jesus has come. And judgment has not come. Evil kings still reign. 
In fact, they're putting prophets into prison. They're beheading prophets. The power of Rome has not been broken. Corrupt priests are still ministering in the temple. And John is in prison. So what is happening here? There's, a, there's an unfulfilled expectation. He has a theological problem with Jesus. He says, Jesus, you are not fulfilling my eschatological expectations on what the Messiah is supposed to do right now. So maybe you're not the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Or is there another one coming who will bring judgment? Now the second reason for doubting that John has is personal. John is in prison. He's in prison for doing what God sent him to do. He did things right. At the very beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, Jesus clearly proclaimed, and I, and I think everybody knew that proclamation. I think this was sort of the platform of the Messiah that was, that was uh, set forth at the synagogue at Nazareth very clearly. Jesus proclaimed, applying a messianic prophecy to himself, and this is in Luke 4, 18 and 19, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus says, this is why I have come. And John is thinking, I'm in prison. I'm in prison. I'm oppressed. Where is my liberty? See, Jesus said, I, I have come to, to, uh, uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives. John is saying, I am captive. Jesus said, I, I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. John is saying, I, I'm oppressed. So why is Jesus not setting me free? So a theological problem and a personal problem. So John, rightly so, sends his messengers to Jesus to clarify. With all this personal struggle, with all this theological confusion... Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the one who is supposed to come? And so he sends them, his messengers, his disciples to Jesus. And John is wrestling with something that is very real. And so he brings his doubts to Jesus. Is Jesus really who he says he is? That's the question. Now, we can lament John's weak faith. We can even sympathize with his struggles in prison that undoubtedly affected his thinking about Jesus. But I would like to propose to you this morning that John is asking a question that every true follower of Christ must ask. And I would go even as far as to say that if you've never asked this question, if you've never been offended by Jesus, if you've never been scandalized by him, well, I wonder if you have been dealing with the real Jesus at all. Let me give you an illustration, and then I'll give you some scripture to back this up. Ben Sixsmith, writing in The Spectator, comments on the phenomenon of celebrity pastors in the evangelical movement. Now, we have many celebrity pastors. We have many uh, people who are very glitzy, who are very trendy, who attract great crowds, who have large churches that are very successful. And inevitably, many of them are disgraced and disqualified. And Ben Sixsmith writing about a particular story in the news, maybe about a month ago or so, when one of those pastors was removed from leadership of his church because of his personal 
failings. And he takes this time, his opportunity to, to think about this, the whole idea of being a celebrity pastor in the evangelical movement. And so he concludes that, and he's not a believer, he concludes that this trend, this, uh, this phenomenon represents what he calls the, with a twist of Christianity trend. With a twist of Christianity trend. He's talking about types of churches and leaders who generally affirm and practice a particular worldview, but add a twist of Christianity to it. So he gives examples of leaders who profess to be Christians, and yet their Christianity doesn't seem to shape their values or behavior. They seem to be at home with the fashions and trends of the culture, but they add a little bit of Christianity to it. There's a twist to it. It it feels vaguely Christian. Their preaching is, is not offensive. They're not really opposing anything that the broader culture does not already oppose. Six Smith asks, so if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? It's a valid question from an unbeliever. You know, somebody who's observing us, he's looking at, at these leaders, he's looking at these churches that are just putting a little bit of Christianity for flavor into their lives that, that are really indiscernibly the same. They're the same as, as any other life in the world. And so he says, if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? Then he goes on to say, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. He's right. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. I think think he's on to something. It's obviously not true of many, many churches, but it is true of some. Now compare that to how the Apostle Paul, the preacher of the gospel in the New Testament, one after whom we ourselves uh, we ourselves pattern our lives and our, our preaching of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. Paul says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul says, In the larger culture, if you're Jewish, you want a sign. If you are Greek or if you're Gentile, you want wisdom. He says, but what we bring to the table is a crucified Christ, which is going to be perceived as an offense, as a stumbling block, the same word, stumbling block, offense to Jews, because it's not fitting their expectations, and folly to Gentiles. They're going to think it's just stupid to preach Christ like that. Now, the Apostle Peter, another preacher of the gospel from the New Testament, after which we pattern our preaching and lives, Apostle Peter calls Christ a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, 1 Peter 2.8. So the early church, the church that changed the world, the church that spread the gospel all over the world, saw Jesus 
as incredibly offensive. In fact, they thought that if you preach the, the gospel rightly, both Jews and Gentiles will be offended. They'll be scandalized by this message. There's something that is so different from what everybody else believes in the culture that it has to just, it just stops them in their tracks and they have to deal with it. And many will reject Jesus because he's scandalous to them. Because it's folly and it's a stumbling block, it's offense to them. Now let me be very clear, if you're a person who is new to the gospel, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in person, and you're considering Christianity, you're considering Jesus, and you've heard some good things about Jesus, and you're investigating his claims, I want to be very clear with you that you should expect to be scandalized by Jesus. He is not going to agree with you on everything and then just add his own special Christian twist on your life. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to turn your whole life upside down. That's what he does. He calls you to give up your life, to take up a cross and follow him. That's his call to you. That is offensive. That means your life is not going right. It's not, it's not going well. You need to change your whole life. You need to take on a share of suffering. And you need to follow him wherever he goes. And he went to the cross. If Jesus is who he is, he says he is. The Messiah, the God-man, the crucified Savior of the world. How could you not expect to struggle with what he says and does? Now, if he is whom we imagine him to be, he's going to agree with everything we believe because he's coming from our imagination. But if he is who he says he is, if he is the incarnate Christ, if he is one who came to become human, God becoming human, if he came to live into our existence, our lives, if he suffered, if he died for our sins, if he took on our guilt, if he rose again, if he is all that he says he is and all that he did, of course we're going to disagree with him. Of course we're going to struggle with his claims. Of course we're going to think it's unreasonable for him to demand our whole lives. Now, how could you expect not to struggle with the claims of the gospel if they are what they are? Now, if we adjusted to ourselves, if we adapt them to our taste, sure, then there'll be no struggle and no sermon will ever be offensive. But I think if I'm doing my job right, you will leave a little bit offended, at least. At least a little bit. Because if God's word is proclaimed, it's going to push you, right? It's going it's to change us. And even for believers, now obviously if you're not a believer, yes, your first encounter in Christ is going to be a shocking thing. And you're going to discover that he believes all sorts of things you disagree with. And he demands all sorts of things that you think are unreasonable to ask for. But even for a believer, those of us who have walked with Christ, this struggle does not end at conversion. We still struggle. Now, this struggle is transformed, and I'll talk a little bit about, about how it's transformed. This struggle is now full of faith and trust in Him. He helps us in our doubts. That's all true, but we continue to find that many points, there are many points at which Jesus is at odds with us still, as He should be, if He is Lord. If He is Lord... Of course, we're going to disagree with him. It's either I am Lord 
for he is Lord, and if he is Lord, I'm going to disagree with him. And we're going to have to wrestle with some really difficult things, and we're going to struggle, and we're going to suffer, and it's going to be difficult. Now, we call this process sanctification. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what Christian life is. If you become a Christian, you, you embrace Jesus by faith, the rest of your life until he returns or until you die and meet him is being conformed to who he is, which means that at every point, your life is being adjusted, it's being changed, it's being chiseled. You know, there's, there are things that are changing in your life. And if it's not happening, he's not Lord. He's not who he says he is. So I want to encourage you to bring your honest questions to God. God is not disappointed in you when you do that. God is expecting that you're struggling with all these things. Of course you are. You are a sinner that's saved by grace and is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. You're going to struggle. There's going to be lots of times when you're going to ask questions like John is asking from prison. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? What does Jesus say to John? Does he say, pull yourself together? You're a prophet, more than a prophet? What are you doing entertaining these doubts, right? What are you doing spreading these doubts? And now your messengers, now your disciples know, now people are going to hear what you're thinking. Does he say, close your eyes and just believe? Right? Hold your fist really tight, close your eyes and just believe, just don't let these doubts come into your mind. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus' answer is astounding. He says, consider who I am and what I have done. This is Jesus' answer. Consider who I am and what I have done. Please notice the emphasis. Jesus says he's not focusing on John's doubts. He's shifting his attention to himself. He said, consider what you see and hear. Consider who I am and consider what I have done, and that's how you can deal with your doubts. I want you to hear me now that Jesus' answer to every doubting heart is, look at me. Jesus' answer to every doubting heart is, look at me. Verses 22 and 23. He answered them, the messengers from John. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, work through your obstacles in your faith by considering what I'm doing. You wanted me to use my power for judgment, but I'm not doing that. Not yet. He says, instead, I'm healing, I'm cleansing, I'm raising the dead and preaching my message to the poor. Now, of course, John, when he heard this, would immediately know that Jesus is quoting messianic prophecies from Isaiah and given him evidence, in fact, evidence that he is the one to come. When John hears Jesus, Jesus say, look at what's going on. The blind are receiving sight, the lepers are cleansed, the poor are being preached to. He says, all that means that I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling these prophecies from Isaiah. But Jesus isn't just saying, yes, I am the one who you're waiting for and you don't need to look for another by quoting scripture. He's not just saying that. He's getting deeper into John's doubts. Now first, notice the emphasis here. He's not focusing on the judgment of the strong, but on the help for the weak. 
Look at all the groups that Jesus is listing as those who are benefiting from his messianic ministry. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, and the poor. These are all people who have no other hope but a gracious intervention of God. The Bible teaches consistently that those who find hope in Christ are those who have no hope in anything or anyone else. We can never deal with God from the position of strength, but only from the position of weakness. What Jesus is telling John is this, you want to look at me through the lens of judgment, me using my power to judge, he says, but I want you to look at me through the lens of grace. John 13, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Was John wrong about the coming judgment? No, he wasn't. But he was ready for the second coming while Jesus was still busy with the first. In some ways, John the Baptist, whom we are preaching about during this Advent season, did not understand Advent. He didn't understand that we're between the two comings. And judgment is coming, yes. The winnowing fork is going to be there. The axe will cut down the tree. It will, it will happen. But right now, what Jesus is doing is he's showing grace to people. And he is saving. He's calling people to himself. He's going to the weak because they understand that there's no other hope. He's going to the poor because they can't trust their riches. And Jesus wants John to see what Jesus' messianic ministry actually is. That it's not judgment, not yet, but it is salvation. Jesus' answer to John was, you are right to want me to use my power, but you are wrong about the way this power is to be used right now. Look at what I'm doing, Jesus says. I'm preaching the gospel to the poor, to anyone who is willing to admit they need salvation, that they cannot help themselves. He says, I'm helping those who are helpless. I'm giving hope to those who are hopeless because this is how things work in my kingdom. And yes, judgment will come, but not yet. Not until I gather all the weak that have embraced me. Not until I gather everybody who believes in this message of hope, that hope comes from God and that the God is a God of grace. So, so Jesus says, John, look at me through the lens of grace. I've come to save. Now secondly, it's interesting that in, in Jesus' answer, there's a telling omission. Jesus is quoting this messianic prophecies, and, and I think John, John was, was supposed to catch this. I think John would have caught what Jesus is omitting, what he's leaving out. Now let me take you back to Luke 4, 18 and 19 again, a passage that Jesus applied to himself at the beginning of his ministry as a platform for his ministry. There he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, 
when he now says to Jesus, look what's happening, observe the signs of my messianic ministry, he does mention preaching good news to the poor, what he said at, at Nazareth, he's saying now. He does say, he does speak about recovering of sight to the blind, again that corresponds. But what about proclaiming liberty to the captives? What about setting at liberty those who are oppressed? I think Jesus is deliberately omitting this part of messianic prophecy in his answer to John. Don't you find it curious? He says all the other things. He said, look what's happening. The, the poor are receiving the gospel. The blind are receiving sight. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. But he says nothing about the imprisoned being liberated, which is a major part of his messianic platform. Why? Jesus responds to John's honest question by saying, I am the one who is to come, but your expectations need to be adjusted. You don't get to define me, Jesus says. I am a God of grace and not a God of deals. He says, we're not bargaining here. I have come to save all who are willing to give up their rights, to admit their weakness, to acknowledge that they cannot save themselves. And if you think that you do not deserve to be in prison, which is what John thinks, he thinks God has not been fair to him, that he did everything God asked him to do, and now he's in prison about to be beheaded. And Jesus says, if you think you don't deserve to be in prison, if somehow you think that God has not dealt fairly with you, you're not thinking rightly about me. You're still thinking in the categories of fairness. You're still thinking about the categories of what you deserve from God. Fairness means judgment for everyone. Grace means salvation to those who refuse to hold on to their idea of fairness, who stop making deals with God. And grace may mean prison, may mean sickness, may mean persecution, even martyrdom, as it did for John, but all ultimately leading to salvation. And so Jesus says to John, look at how I use my power. I'm helping, I'm saving, I'm giving hope, I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. This is not fair. It isn't fair, but it is grace. And the same power that, that I'm using to preach the gospel to the poor and liberating them from spiritual darkness is the same power that is keeping you in prison right now. He's not powerless. He's just choosing to use his power differently from what John expected him to do. And this too, Jesus says, is grace to you, whether you understand it or not. Now, Jesus makes the same point about expectations when he turns to the crowds in verses 24 and following. And he's talking about John now, and he's talking to the crowds, but he's answering the same question. He says, what did you go out to, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you even, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
expectations of John's hearers needed to be adjusted as they heard John's preaching. Lots of things needed to change. They had to acknowledge that they were not right to expect what they expected from God. John completely changed the paradigm. And those who went along with that change, those who adjusted their expectations, actually, it says, declared God just. When all the people heard this, this is verse 29, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, meaning that they adjusted their expectations and accepted what God was doing. They accepted that God is right, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So some tax collectors and people like that, the weak, the blind, the lame, the poor, the dead, they accepted what John was preaching. They accepted what Jesus was preaching. They accepted grace. They adjusted their expectations. They said, God is right to do that. It's not fair, but God is right to do that because he's a God of grace. But others, like the Pharisees and the lawyers, rejected their purpose, God's purpose to them. Why? They were not willing to break out of this mindset of fairness. They still wanted to trust their accomplishments. They had hope in themselves. They didn't need grace. And when God revealed himself as a God of grace, he wasn't a God they needed. He wasn't a God they wanted. Jesus' answer to John is this. You need to develop your expectations based on who I am and what I say and what I do and not based on who you think I should be and what you say I should do. You need to break out of this mindset of, of fairness, of deals and bargaining and deserving and earning and claiming and insisting on your rights. You can't be in prison and say, I don't deserve to be in prison. It's not how God works. God is a God of grace. And the same God who forgives people because they don't deserve it also gives us suffering, also puts us in all sorts of situations. He can do that. And this is an implication of a God of grace. If you believe that God is completely gracious, that you haven't done anything at all to deserve salvation, if you believe that, which is a clear biblical teaching, and every Christian should believe that, must believe that, and if you believe that, that means God can ask anything of you because you have no bargaining chips. Do you, do you see what the gospel means? If God is a God of grace, which is what Jesus says he is, he says, look what I'm doing with my power. I'm blessing people. I'm saving them. I'm going after the most undeserving tax collectors. And they're rejoicing at this message of grace. Why? Because they don't need to bring anything to the ta table, and they don't have anything to bring to the table. They accept grace, and they rejoice in it. And if that's true, if God operates on grace, that means nothing is off the table. Prison, suffering, sickness, martyrdom, all of that is on the table. Now, this, this is incredible stuff that Jesus is saying to John. He's telling him, these are the right expectations. Listen to what I say, look at what I'm doing, and adjust your expectations to me. You need to develop what you think about me based on me, he says, not based on you. Look at me through the lens of grace and trust that what I'm doing in your life is grace too. 
Now, really briefly, here's an illustration that Jesus is using. This is verses 31 through 35. He's addressing the crowds, but still answering the same question. He's still answering John's question, because that's our question, too. Verse 31, he says, To what shall I compare uh, the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, the illustration is very clear. It would have been even clearer to people who were listening. In the marketplace, while the parents are shopping, the children are playing. What are they doing? There are only two big things that happens in that world, weddings and funerals, right? So they either play in the wedding game or the funeral game. It's two options here. We either get the flute, right, and sing a happy tune and pretend it's a wedding. You're the groom, you're the bride, you're the wedding party, here's a feast. Or we pretend it's a funeral. We, we sing a sad tune, a dirge, and we're pretending that it's a funeral. Now, two options. And the point here is that some kids are not happy with either option. Because the happy tune is too happy. We don't want to play weddings. Tired of weddings. Always play weddings. And then they say, okay, well, let's play funerals. Ah, that tune is too sad. I don't want to be sad. I'll always play funerals. What's the problem? The problem isn't in the game. The problem is in the kids. They're just moody and bored and they don't want to do anything. A familiar reality to any parent, right? What do you want to eat? Pizza? Oh, I don't want pizza. Hot dogs? Oh, I don't want hot dogs. Let me make you a salad. I hate salad, right? <laughs> you go through all the options. It doesn't matter what you say. There's no good option there. Why? Because the problem isn't in the selection of meals. The problem is in the child. They're just spoiled, petulant children. <laughs> They're not going to accept anything you give them. Now, this is Jesus' illustration. What he's saying is, is that no matter what the options God gives you, you're not going to like any of them because you're being childish. You're being childish. You're dealing with me, Jesus says, on your own terms. You are trying to define who I am, but you need to accept me as I am. He says, I get to set expectations, not you. You don't start with yourself and then say, well, this tune is happy enough or this tune is sad enough. You start with me. In other words, Jesus is encouraging us to be childlike but not childish. It's a very important distinction. And some of us act like petulant children. We're never happy with anything Jesus does in our lives. Always complaining. He never meets our expectations. No matter how much we pray, he never does what he want, what we want. But look at how Jesus ends his illustration. He says, wisdom is justified by all her children. What he means is that those who are wise, those who give up their childish tantrums, become childlike in their faith and accept Jesus for who he is, the God of grace who came to save us. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 
through 24. I quoted part of that verse, but there's an ending to this passage that's really important. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now listen to the other part. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Something changes at conversion. Now, we don't stop struggling. We still have doubts. We're still wrestling with all sorts of things that God demands of us and all sorts of parts of of who Jesus is. But this faith, this wisdom, this maturity that comes through God's work in our hearts when we actually embrace Jesus by faith, those who are called, those who come to him, it transforms our, our view of Christ. And though we still struggle, we still doubt, we still feel the tension, we are sometimes scandalized by what Jesus demands of us, we bring all of that to the one that we have come to believe is the power and the wisdom of God come to save us by grace. In other words, we still struggle, but we struggle knowing that he is the one. And we're not looking for another. So John's question, remember, was, are you the one or should we look for another? The Christian says, you are the one, and I'm really struggling with some things that you're saying, but there's no other. There's no one else I'm looking for. This is it. You are it because I am letting you define yourself. I'm not bringing my expectations to you. I'm basing my expectations on who you are and what you say. I'm not going to be like a kid in the marketplace. You do something sad, I say it's too sad. You do something happy, I say it's too happy. Nothing works for me. It says, no, I'm going to have this childlike faith that starts with the parent. It starts with Jesus and then accepts him on his own terms. And so I leave you with this personal challenge. Do you believe Jesus is the one? Or will you keep looking for another? It's a very simple question. That's John's question. That's the question Jesus answers in our text. Is Jesus' answer sufficient for you? Are you okay to say, I will embrace you as you are, and when I struggle, I'll bring it to you? I'm not going to look for another. I'm going to bring my doubts to you, and I'll let you respond to my questions. Are you willing to accept Jesus on his own terms, as scandalous as they may seem to you? Are you willing to look at Jesus through the lens of grace and accept him as a God of grace that came to die for your sins and rise for your justification? Are you willing for Jesus to set expectations for your life? Are you willing to give up childishness and become childlike in your faith? Now I'm going to pray. We're going to come to the table. We're going to take communion. But as I pray, as we take communion, and even as you walk out after the benediction, I want you to wrestle with this question. This is the most important question. This is the personal question you have to answer. Are you willing to take Jesus on his own terms?